Well, today we're going to continue in the Gospel of Luke, so I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. Young disciples, you need to write down that passage, Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. That's on page 878 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. Let me give you a little bit of information about where we're headed with this sermon. Today I'm going to be talking about what it means to be poured out in this particular time before the return of King Jesus Christ. And unto that end, I think today's passage shows us three things. Two types of people, two ways to tell those people, and two kinds of results for those people. So with that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. And if you're not able to stand, that is more than okay. Stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. Church, hear the word of the Lord. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So when it comes to the victory of the European stage of World War II, there are two dates that stand above the rest. The first is June 6, 1944, commonly referred to as D-Day. On this day, 
the Western Allies launched the largest amphibious military operation in the history of the world, throwing 156,000 troops, 7,000 ships, and 3,000 aircraft at the beaches of northern France, where they then broke through the heavy German defenses. And it was the major turning point in the war and the beginning of the end for the Axis powers. The second day took place less than a year later on May 8th, 1945, commonly referred to as VE Day, meaning victory in Europe. On this day, Germany signed an unconditional surrender after Adolf Hitler committed suicide and the capital city of Berlin was taken. The world celebrated and many still commemorate the event every May 8th. But often lost between these two bookended events are the 336 days that stretched in between them. Even though D-Day was a tremendous success, it wasn't like the Allies simply had to walk their way through the rest of France and Germany. No, no. Those 336 days were some of the hardest work in the war including the failed Operation Market Garden, the nightmarish Battle of the Bulge, and the liberation of concentration camps. This was no time to kick back and fill up on the victory. Thousands of soldiers were still to be killed and wounded, and much sacrificial blood was still to be poured out. In a similar way, when it comes to the victory of Christianity, there are also two dates that stand above the rest. First of all, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is where the powers of sin and Satan and death were decisively defeated. It was the major turning point in the war, and it marks the beginning of the end of a fallen world. The second date is the return of Jesus Christ, a day in which no one actually knows. But we do know that on that day will be the unconditional surrender of all evil and victory in full measure delivered to God's people. And yet in between these two bookend events, it is tempting to live like there is no time stretched in between. As though like we can simply walk our way into the new creation without some of the hardest work of the war. And we see this very thing happening at the beginning of today's passage. Following the amazing things that Jesus did in Jericho, which, by the way, was only about 17 miles from the capital city of Jerusalem, we read this in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So to the disciples... Man, it's like Berlin is about to be taken here. Like to them, the appearing of the kingdom of God meant VI day. VI meaning victory for Israel. They expected that it would be the messianic defeat of all their enemies, especially their Roman overlords. They're thinking this. Let's kick back. Let's fill up on this victory. Look at what Jesus is doing. But what Jesus wants them to understand is the hardest work of the war is still to come. Terrible wounding and killing is about to take place and much sacrificial blood is still to be poured out in Jerusalem. And so his parable aims to help them and us to understand these 336 days. This in-between 
how to live in them, and how to come out victoriously on the other side of them. And so thus I want to first consider today two types of people who will emerge in these days. What brings out who they are pivots on their relationship to the king. We begin reading about him in verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Young disciples, you need to know that part. The reason why he went away was to go and receive a kingdom and come back. So here's some context for you. In those days when someone was given a kingship within this Roman Empire, they had to travel all the way to the capital city of Rome to be crowned king by the emperor himself. Then they would return to rule their kingdom. So you're talking about a journey that would have taken months, and then no one knew exactly when that king was going to return. And so Jesus is referring to himself here. In rising from the dead, he has already been given the kingdom of God. We see this in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name. You see, he has ascended to heaven as king. That is, he has gone to a far country to be crowned at the throne of God. D-Day is done because of Jesus. But Philippians 2 continues. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is King, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In other words, he will eventually return to receive his kingdom in fullness. Wherein all will submit to his reign. We might call that V-E day. Victory day that is coming. But no one knows exactly when that will be. So in the meantime, verse 11. Calling ten of his servants, he gave to them, young disciples, how many? Look at the, look at the screen here. How many minas did he give? Ten. You want to write down ten. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. So here, the two types of people start to emerge. Since the nobleman's kingship is already determined, it is expected that all will submit to his reign. And loyal servants will have the opportunity to be entrusted with sharing that reign. This tells us a couple of things, y'all. First, the king is rigorous and he is eager to do the work of the kingdom, even in his absence. And second, it tells us that the king is generous and he is eager to share the work of his kingdom with others. Therefore, he gives, he gives each of them a mina, a mina was about 100 days worth of wages. And he wants them to be fruitful and multiply it, to, to build up the kingdom in the name of the king while he is gone. And what this represents is Jesus giving each of us a gift that he expects us to use for his glory. Now, Amina is not necessarily a great amount. This is different from the parable of the talents where different amounts are given to different people. So don't think of this in terms of big and unique gifts that maybe somebody else has that you don't have. Think of it more as the things that we all get. Life, body, time. We all get 24 hours in a day. Mind, soul, your story even. 
And in giving us such things, what he says to humanity at the beginning of the Bible is still true for us today. And God blessed them. He, he gives them this gift. And God says to them in light of it, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, get to work. Get out there. Make use of it. In Antioch language, you are blessed to be a blessing. Not from guilt, though, but from grace. What a generous king. We don't deserve these gifts, but he gives them anyways and allows us to participate in the work. Now, unfortunately, not everyone sees it that way because we read in verse 14, but his citizens hated him and even sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. You see, this concept would have been relevant to Jesus' listeners because this very thing happened to the ruler over Jericho's area. His name was Archelaus. Archelaus was known for, among other things, killing 3,000 of his own subjects. Okay? And before Archelaus could even reach Rome, his citizens hated him so much that they sent representatives to protest. And then ultimately, he wasn't given the title of king. And y'all just want to know about those representatives. Like, that is bold. Because what if Archelaus was named king anyway? Like, this is a dude who's already known for slaughtering 3,000 of his own people. What's he going to do to you when you protest his reign? And so similar, I see here, is the case of King Jesus when he comes again. Which is why God speaks this through the psalmist prophesying of Jesus. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? God sits in the heavens laughing, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The final word is spoken over this. You don't like my king, God says? Too bad. He is king. Spoken, it's done. So as you dwell in these 336 days, so to speak, in between the first coming and the second coming of King Jesus, know that you will emerge as one of two types of people. Those who trust King Jesus and share in his reign, and those who do not trust in King Jesus and protest against his reign. And then the important question here is, how can you tell? How can you tell what kind of person you are, what kind of persons others are? Well, as a second application this morning, there are two ways to tell. And the parable continues in verse 15. When he returned, that is the king, having received the kingdom, he ordered those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him. Notice this is the very first thing that he does when he returns, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So what we see here is upon Jesus' return, there will be a calling to account. The gifts that we have been given, we said life, body, time, mind, soul, story. How did you use them? Were you fruitful and multiplying? You were blessed. Were you a blessing? And I want you to see that this accounting starts with who in the parable? The accounting starts with the servants, not the enemies. The enemies he will deal with later. But the very first folks in line for his accounting are his own servants. As 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 tells us, Judgment begins with the household of God. 
Listen, salvation is not escaping from giving an account. It's moving up to first in line so that you can be rewarded. See that, okay? Don't think of the judgment day as a day that's going to burn you alive with fire, believer. Think of it as a day in which you get to give an account first because God wants to commend you. Don't you want to be ready? Like, don't you want to be commended by such a good and generous king? Like these two servants mentioned in verse 16. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, what? Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over a bunch of minas, right? No, over ten cities. Wow, it's like your own kingdom of, of sorts. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas more. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So we aren't told how they do it, but we know for sure that both these servants obeyed the nobleman by engaging in business until he returned. And apparently, they worked really hard at it because one of them has a 1,000% gain and the other one has a 500% gain. So you know what that means? They trusted that the nobleman would indeed return as king. If you don't think he's going to return as king, then you take your mina and you do whatever you want to with it. But if you think he's going to return, you know you're going to have to give an account, and so you use it according to how he told you to use it. They got ready. They poured themselves out. They wanted to be commended, and indeed, they were. Unfortunately, again, this was not the case for everyone. Jesus continues in verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. Young disciples, he was scared of the king because he saw him as a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. So here we come to who I will be referring to as the third man. He not only disobeyed the nobleman altogether, but he did so carelessly. Like, let me ask y'all a question. When is the last time that you left a hundred days wages laying around in a tissue paper? Like, when is the last time you took three months salary and you, uh, you put it in a napkin? Anybody? This is crazy. Like, in these days, there was direction from the Old Testament for how you would even handle this. Jewish culture said, at least bury it in the ground. Don't leave it laying around. And his reason for having nothing to account for here, he was afraid. And the word that he uses describes the, to describe the king can be translated in different ways besides severe. They include words like harsh, bitter, exacting, uncharitable, or even crabby. You're a crabby guy, so I don't want to mess with your money. I knew what would happen. This is not a compliment, is it? Like the sense that it carries is that the king shares his reign only in order to take advantage of people and get more for himself. It's a selfish king is what this man is saying, which has already been proven wrong in the story because what did he do with the other two servants before this? Did he like snatch their prophets away and take them for himself? No way. Like he, he commended them and he gave them even more. That's because he is a generous king. 
It's so clear in the passage. So what this tells us is that the third man does not trust the king because he does not know the king. And at the end of the day, this passive attitude toward the king is actually no different from the aggressive actions of the protesters, is it? It's not any different. Remember, there are only two types of people, those who trust and those who don't. Listen, if you distrust King Jesus, like if you think he's a bad ruler, specifically if you think that he takes advantage of people in order to just get what he wants, you don't know my king. And don't hear that like as a threat. Hear that like as an invitation. Come and meet him in one of these gospels. Have you not encountered him as we preach through the gospel of Luke? Like, come and meet him in one of these gospels. Like, get out of the book of Romans, okay? You can get there later. In the gospels is the breast milk of Christianity. So come and meet my king here and see if you do not want to follow him. See if he is not trustworthy. And in these 336 days, so to speak, that will be how you can tell whether you are of his kingdom or not. Are you obeying the king? Are you being fruitful and multiplying? Are you being poured out? And depending on how you answer comes our third application this morning. There are two kinds of results. If you do not trust the king and thus choose not to be poured out for him, like the third man, here's what happens in verse 22. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Well, then why, why then do you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. Let me put it to you this way. People often say, perhaps even people in this room, if that's how God is, then I would never want to know him. Have you heard people say that? Has your own heart said that? Let me give some examples. If God sends people to hell, then I don't want to know him. If God disapproves of homosexuality, then I would never want to know him. If God allows evil in the world when it's within his power to end it immediately, then I would never want to know him. But here's the thing. If you are convinced that God is that bad, then wouldn't logic tell you that it might be a good idea to try to appease him? Right? If you you think he's that bad of a God, and yet he is still God, it might be a good idea to try to appease him. That, you know, like, he is still God, and protesting him may not be a good idea. Saw that? This is the way that the king breaks down the third man's reasoning. And thus, verse 24, he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. He already has so much. You're so unfair. Like, you should distribute to everyone equally. And he says, no, no, take it away. Because that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
For the one who doesn't trust the king and isn't fruitful in multiplying, here is the first wave of results. The gracious gift that he's been given is taken away and given to the ones who are fruitful in multiplying. For an example, Judas Iscariot. Judas, he's counted among the closest servants and friends of Jesus. What a privilege. But then he basically hides that gift in a handkerchief. How? By betraying Jesus, refusing his forgiveness, and committing suicide. And what's the result? What happens with Judas's story? Do you remember? It carries on into the book of Acts, and we see that even what Judas was given is given to another. A faithful disciple named Matthias takes his place. But that's just the first wave, y'all. Here's the second in verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Strong words, huh? In my understanding, even though the third man has the appearance of being a servant, he's proven to be as rebellious as the delegation of protesters. And so he gets the same consequences as them. Judgment. That's all this is saying. They sowed distrust and rejection. Now they reap distrust and rejection. And this is what the Lord has been warning us about in regard to King Jesus. Going back to Psalm 2, upon his enemies when Jesus returns, the psalmist says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That is terrifying. It's in the scriptures. So why choose those results for your life? Like especially when there is another kind of results that you have access to. What does the king do to the servants who pour themselves out? Well, he commends them. He says what? Remember? Well done, good servant. I'm so proud. And he not only commends them, but then he rewards them. He says, you shall have authority over ten cities, and you are to be over five cities. Notice a couple things about this here. First, the king is generous and eager to share the work of the kingdom, isn't he? Like, the proportion here is so much greater. You're like faithful with one little mina, and you're given authority over cities. That's how generous God is in his rewarding You think, you have impossible expectations, God. He's like, no, just be faithful with a little bit. Be faithful with that child. Be faithful with one day at a time. Be faithful with what little is in your bank account, even though you need more, want more. Be faithful with it and see what I do. This life and the life to come. Second, the king is rigorous and eager to do the work of the kingdom. Look at this, y'all. The reward for these servants isn't rest. The reward is what? More responsibility. Listen, we live in a culture that says if you work hard, the reward is rest. You retire and sit on your case for the rest of your life. No. We say that is, that is countercultural to what we want to be here. What to be here is that we labor to be fruitful and multiply and pour ourselves out, knowing that the reward isn't so that we can sit down and just rest, but that we actually are given more responsibility to our joy, 
to our growth, to the good of others and God's kingdom. And this is applicable not just to this life, but in the life to come. In the new creation, Jesus will give us the opportunity to share in his reign. And there will be work to do. Just read through the scriptures and you'll see it. Pearly gates, streets of gold. That's a description that's real old and probably needs to be laid aside. If you read it closely, you're given work to do in the new creation. It's what you were made for. It's a great joy in it. And this is the result that I want to call you toward today. It's right before you. Why would you not take it? And so as I move this toward application for our specific congregation, let me temper what I'm about to say with a spectrum, okay? There are many of you in this church who are already pouring yourselves out. And I'm so grateful. When people draw near to Antioch Church, it was like uh, our, our friend and brother, Jesus Pacheco, who's been coming and helping us with food pantry. He came a little bit early yesterday. No one was here except the deacon team meeting. He, I was like, hey, just come on in and sit down. And he did. And he interrupted us as we were going. And he said, you know, I'm really amazed. I've never been in a deacon's meeting where there aren't just people with gray hair. And he was genuinely amazed. And he said, you know, I'm really amazed. There are so many young people here. And they are here on Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. And we were like, yeah, we have amazing people who are serving their hearts out for the church. We also said we would love to have some gray hair up in this meeting, okay? So we want that too, all right? But we do. People draw near and they're just so impressed with Antioch. But listen, I also want to say, and this is my tempering of this here, some of you may be pouring yourselves out a little too much. And I'll put myself in that category. You don't have strong boundaries for whatever reason to say, no, I can't do that. You just, yes, yes, just yes, 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 okay? If you hear my call from God's word this morning without this filter, you're just going to take on more. You're going to walk away guilty. You're going to say more yeses that you don't need to say, and you know that in the local church, we will burn you out. We need to protect one another, church. This is part of the tempering and filtering of this by saying to one another, I think you're doing a little too much because I care about you. You don't have to do all that, okay? So this is not Burnout Church. We didn't name it Burnout Church. We named it Antioch Church. And so if this that I'm saying is referring to you, instead of taking on more, take this as a reminder of why it's worth pouring yourself out in the ways that you are. Some of you are real tired. And you're like, why in the world do I just continue to do this over and over and over? There's a reason why. Because you want to be commended by the king. And you will be. Be encouraged. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end, there are others of you in this church who are not pouring yourselves out at all. For whatever reason, your boundaries are too strong. You've got every excuse in the book to not get overwhelmed. I don't want to get overwhelmed. I don't want to get overwhelmed. I don't want to get overwhelmed. But you know what? Somebody in that is still getting overwhelmed. It's all the rest of us who are picking up the slack. Every time you say no, somebody else has to say yes. Just remember that. And if you need to be challenged in that way today, then receive that challenge. Okay? Not with condemnation, but again with invitation to come and be commended and rewarded for pouring yourselves out. And then... A spectrum true is you got the extremes and you got most of us who are all where somewhere in the middle. What we're aiming for here is that you'd be both 
pouring in and pouring out in a measure that is sustainable over the long haul. Take the big picture here. And so the general challenge to you today is pour out in order to receive more responsibility. I'll give some examples of that in just a moment. But pour out, not so that you can eventually rest and say, I did it, but so that you can actually grow and receive and take on even more responsibility in God's church, in God's mission. So what is the next step here? Let me, let me bring this home by referring to family ministry once again. So last week I had lunch with the three leaders who are over those age group ministries, and here are some of the urgent needs that I captured from them. First of all, Sarah O'Malley in Antioch Kids, she needs a team of three servants who will coordinate one person for the nursery, one person for the twos and threes class, and one person for the fours and fives class. If no one does that, Sarah O'Malley has to do it all. Isn't she already doing enough? I think so. Somebody step up. And so the example here would be that I told you I would give you. Instead of just saying, yes, I'm going to do young disciples, and I'm going to do food pantry, and I'm going to do family group uh, leadership, and I'm going to do this over here, and you've got all these kind of like shallow commitments that are spread out real far, saying, you know what? I'm going to step up and take on more responsibility within the ministry of kids by coordinating a class so that Sarah doesn't have to have a triple burden upon her. See what I'm saying? That's what what I'm getting at in taking on more responsibility. Second one here is within Young Disciples. James Power says, need a deacon or deaconess to replace him as he transitions this fall. So again, instead of like, I'm going to spread myself out doing all these different things lightly so I don't get overwhelmed, I'm going to step up and take on the leadership of this ministry for the sake of these young disciples to learn how to handle God's word. Who's that going to be? Who's going to step up? And then lastly for youth, Jason Hunsucker said that he needs a deacon or deaconess to replace him as well sometime over the next 18 months. Isn't Jason doing enough already? Does he also need to be leading the youth ministry for our church? You know, um, at least one adult servant to be consistently present. We're getting ready to roll out policies and procedures that help us to be a, a church that's a safe place for children. And one of those things is like two adults should be with kids at all times. And Jason's often in there by himself because no one has consistently committed to be in there every Sunday morning, even though it's a sacrifice. Okay? And then another one he said is someone to help plan events. I mean, Shannon don't have time to handle thinking about movie nights and, you know, ski trips and whatever else the youth could be doing and need to be doing to develop intentional gospel relationships with one another. Who can step up and do that because they've got some logistical powers, okay? Who's it going to be? If we are a church that is collectively being poured out, then filling these strategic roles should be no problem. God has provided. Who trusts the king? Who wants the reward? Come and get it. Church, we are in the final 336 days before the return of Jesus. And this is no time to kick back and fill up on the victory. Some of the hardest work is still to be done. And you are able to do it. You're able to do it because the generous and rigorous king lives in you. Some of the hardest work is still to be done because he came and did the hard work For us, Jesus took every gift the Father gave him and he multiplied it. He became the enemy. He was slaughtered. He was broken with a rod of iron. He was dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. He died on the cross and he rose again so that he could bear much fruit, 
so that he could be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters who were pouring themselves out just like him so that you could be poured out. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today we are announcing, church, that Jesus Christ is inviting you to this table to come and get filled up. How am I going to pour out? Brad, I'm stretched so thin. Well, bro, I'm stretched thin too. Sister, I'm stretched thin too. How do I keep doing this? Because I come to this table and get filled up. Come and get filled up. That's the invitation to come forward and break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice if you're a baptized believer. Remembering what Christ did for you as it's written across the front, but also in so doing, proclaiming what he promises to do, that he is going to return, and that's what we're living for. And if you're here today and you're not a baptized believer, like the invitation is not to this table. The invitation is to Jesus himself. He has made a way so that you don't have to stand before him someday and hear the words, depart from me. I never knew you, wicked servant. Come to him today. We plead with you. Listen, at food pantry yesterday, as we proclaimed the gospel, three Cuban men put their faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Did God bring them all the way from another country into our city, into our neighborhood, into our little chaotic food pantry. Amen, Steve? <laughs> so that they could hear the good news and be challenged to respond to it, and they did. <sighs> if they did, why not you? Come on today. Turn to Jesus today. Let's go, church. That's what we're praying for in this season of Lent, that God would do something different than he's never done before in here and yesterday he did praise god and let's let it continue right now in this moment as we respond there'll be people in the back waiting saying come on let's pray let's pray let's pray and ask god for miracles in your life for the situations that you're in let's pray and ask god for you to be sustained and strengthened in the ways that you're being poured out that's hard and let's pray come back let's pray you want to trust in jesus hey let's pray with you and say hey come on jesus come and change this life forever let's pray lord it's good to just take a breath Lord, after we receive the piercing sword of your word through the power of your spirit, it's good to just take a breath and to open ourselves up to whatever you might be speaking or wanting to do in this encounter with you. Lord, as we respond by coming to the table, this family table where a feast is laid, Pray that your people would come and be filled up. Filled up again. Poured out this week. 
filled up again next Sunday, poured out again next week, over and over, so that when you come, we can hear well done. And for those here today who cannot come to this table, cannot partake in an earthly feast because they have not yet partaken in the heavenly feast that you will give to their soul if they trust in you and stop trusting in themselves. Lord, would they come to you? I pray for them. Give them courage. I remember that day. I was scared. I cried. I shook. I didn't want to take the step. And you carried me. Would you carry somebody today? Have your way, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name.